We are continuing the gospel according to Matthew. We will be finishing with chapter 20 today, verses 29 through 34. Uh, If you are visiting today, I will be reading through the the passage itself. And then after the reading of, of the word, give you an opportunity to pray silently. Asking God the Holy Spirit to renew your heart. To show the places in your life where you have set him aside, any untoppled idols or high places in your life. And ask that before we enter in the time of the word, then in this time of silent prayer, you make right with God. And then I will pray for us uh, corporately and enter into the time of the word. So reading now from Matthew 20, Verses 29 through 34. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, as we, the, the church, your, this local assembly, we, we come to gather here on the Lord's Day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We come in recognition of being sinners, enemies of God at one time, and yet through mercy unabounding, grace in an unbelievable manner, manner was bestowed on us 
as we came to faith in Christ, redeemed by his atoning sacrifice on the cross, the great Passover lamb. And now we we come here on this day, set apart from the rest of society, that we gather here on the Lord's day in a physical manner to rejoice. Lord, we come to celebrate the work of Christ on the cross through our songs, through our prayers, through our fellowship, and now through the ministry of the Word. And we come as a people in need, while regenerate through the Spirit, we still fight and battle with our own sin nature. In this week, we've faced defeat at the enemy within. Lord, let us come here who are mourning and grieving, ashamed, prideful, Lord, and through your word and through the spirit, may you cleanse your people of all these things and rather turn our thoughts and affections to Christ, our Lord. Refresh our hearts and renew our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit and draw us closer and closer to Christ as we wait his glorious return. Unify us through the Spirit in our shared union with Christ, that we would bear much love for one another. We pray all glory to your name as we continue in this time of public worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This particular passage about the healing of the blind men is is both symbolic and, and an overwhelming kind of throwback to the earlier portions of the ministry of Jesus. And it's also with full recognition that he's given a final reminder to his his disciples, to the apostles, as he had taken them aside in this last interaction that we, we went through, to let them know that the real reason he's going to Jerusalem is to face shame and abuse and beating and mockery and ultimately a criminal's death. And now, as he's done that, we find ourselves once again in a place that we often were in the earlier portions of Matthew, where we have the crowds. He's he's evaded the crowds with purpose since about chapter 14, on on and off. And now, as, as it were, he's going now from Jericho to Jerusalem, And these crowds are now following him. In this particular passage, there's much that you could make a sermon or a lesson about. About blindness and spiritual blindness. About mercy and grace. And and, and I'll talk about all those. But one of the things I think that is really overlooked, but really important, and one of the things that happens in this passage, is the action of the crowds. And who the crowds represent throughout the entirety of this gospel account and 
in your lives. See, the way that this gospel is written, you have primarily three groups. You have those that are clearly opponents of Jesus, and they're generally named scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, the high priests, and all those as we go into the Romans. They'll be named over and over again. It's it's clear to the reader and the audience of the time, these are the ones who are the real enemies of Jesus. They're the ones who are really after him. They're the ones that the authors will record, particularly in John's gospel, who want to kill him. And then you have the disciples, and the disciples are seen as those who Jesus has either purposely called to himself, those who will become the apostles, but also those along the way who become believers in Christ. And then they will follow him. And then there's times where he separates just for a teaching of the 12 or the 3 or something like that, but then disciples are lumped in again with those who are both helping in Uh, supporting Jesus and the 12 and also those who are believers, those who have been healed and then follow and all these things. But then there's this lump, the largest group that, that we see, and that's the crowds. And the crowds generally are seen as this mixed assembly of those who are following and watching something happen. Here's a famous teacher Things generally happen when Jesus is around, so then the crowds follow. But anytime things get real, the crowds disappear. When there's a lot, some food to be had, Jesus even speaks of this with the miraculous feeding. They're joyful because their stomachs are full, but in essence asking, where are they now? And the crowds play an important part because now as he's going to Jerusalem, what what we're going to see is Jesus is going to have this interaction similar to healing of lepers and and the woman who, who reaches out to him in a crowd and all these things, these miraculous healings done in front of crowds. And then we look to the crowd's reaction for the people who are Jesus gained his attention. And now these crowds after this will go to the triumphal entry. And maybe they're even crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And then the crowds will watch Jesus go into Jerusalem and call condemnation on the dead worship of Yahweh. As he'll call condemnation on the religious leaders and the unbelief. He'll even weep and lament over the state of Jerusalem, the city on the hill that was supposed to be a beacon to God for the nations. And then those same crowds will watch Jesus be paraded before them. And those same crowds will be given an option Release the king of the Jews or a murderer. And those same crowds are going to cry out that they would rather have a murderer go free than the author of life. The crowds are what we see when we watch fascinated on our TVs as cities are burning a few years ago. 
How did that happen? How do people suddenly get dragged along to something and then find themselves in the middle of a city burning down and hopefully at some moment thinking that that got out of hand faster than I thought it would? The crowds, the insidious draw, we call it peer pressure. It happens very young. Two girls playing on a piece of gym equipment together. Everything's great. Everything's normal. And then a third girl shows up. And all three girls have been raised properly. All have have been raised to respect and enjoy each other and be kind to one another. But the dynamic of the two girls to the three girls now in all three minds, like one of you has got to go. Somehow, even at that age, all the, all the mothers of, of girls are like, no, yes. But then somehow, if you're a child or if you're a teenager, and let's go ahead and move from children to teenager. No raise of hands. I'm just going to make a broad statement. If your parents have not given you a phone yet, it's because they love you, not because they hate you. No, they desire the best for you, not for your utter failure in society before your peers. But you feel the draw, the the, the need to be like the rest of the crowds. Well, let me tell you something, teenagers, that doesn't end now. The crowds will draw you the rest of your life. The crowds call you to quiet and submissiveness and going along with whatever everyone else is saying needs to be gone along to. And it couldn't be clearer in our lives that the need for the Christian church not to be so passionate about your favorite political ideal, but to be so passionate about the mercy of Christ, his compassion for sinful man, that our need to just go along and not be noticed in a crowd when God is calling you out of the crowd to proclaim his worth. So we have a scene here where Jesus is now coming from Jericho and he's moving his way, essentially, which is pretty kind of, I would say, flatly going from the east to the west, passing the Jordan or going over the Jordan into Jericho and now heading towards on his triumphal entry, as we call it. And so in 29, as they went out of Jericho, here it comes, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The scene is set for you to imagine, if you will, in your mind, Jesus and the twelve and the kind of the close-knit disciples, the crowds fanned out behind them. And in Luke's account, it says one, beg, one, one blind man it was begging and asked, essentially, what's happening? 
Or what's that noise? And someone will tell them in Luke's account, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. In Mark's account, it actually gives that particular blind man a name, Bartimaeus. Here in Matthew's account, it's, it's just saying two blind men. And so they're sitting along the way. Again, this is in the spring. Passover is about to happen. There would have been crowds coming from all over the Roman world, religious Jews coming back to celebrate the Passover. And so they found themselves on a common roadway to where they could, someone more than likely they would have had to have placed them there so they could ask for money or alms, which was, a, which was a, an expectation. We went over this earlier when it talked about the religious life during the time of, of Jesus. A religious Jew would have been expected to give alms. In fact, the temple had almsgiving. That was a part of it. And then these people, like people who were in need, who were blind, who were lepers, who were crippled, these people that Jesus had gone to over and over again, the unmarried, the widow, purpose of the, the part of what was given to the church, or to the church, to the, to the temple was in order to take care of people like that in society. But also at times like this, where in great influx of people were coming to Jew to worship, they would, they would to Judea to worship, they would be in places where there was much foot traffic. And so there they are, blind, they can't see. We've, we've interacted with lepers, we've interacted with the paralytic. But in a time, in the first century, it's hard to imagine something like blindness in a world like this. The complete inability to see and the people's unscriptural view of what had been built here in the first century, that that meant they were cursed by God. Here comes Jesus of Nazareth. What's his reputation? Healing. Teaching. Confounding the governing officials that that make up the religious elite of the, the time. His reputation has grown. And if we think of the things from the first 19 chapters that he's done, healed leprosy, it's impossible. Raise the dead, even more. Told a paralytic by, of li- lifetime paralytic to get up and walk. This was his reputation. The crowds knew what Jesus did was heal people. Even the most socially kind of unacceptable type of healing. A woman who has uncontrollable bleeding for a dozen years. She was the ultimate outcast in society. She could not be married and she was viewed as ceremonially unclean for basically the entirety of your adult life. But she reaches out and grabs Jesus' garment in hope. And she's healed. And he stops in the midst of the crowds to acknowledge her. Unheard of. This is who Jesus is. Yet now they're walking. The crowds, if they really cared, if they really were interested in what Jesus was interested in, when they saw two blind men, you would think these thousands of people would have been like, Jesus, look, there's some, there's some blind people. 
but instead they cry out for him. And the acknowledgement as son of David is one of the most straightforward acknowledgements that we've seen in the scriptures outside of the confession of Peter that they knew who Jesus was. This is an allusion to to 2 Samuel 7 where God makes the covenant with David and he tells him that they'll have he'll have a descendant on his throne and the throne will last how long forever and there'll be no more war and there'll be no more enemies and all these things it's it's central to the idea of people looking for a king like David the one who is going to reign not just the seed of the woman who would break the curse of the serpent, but one who would reign like a king and would be in the line of David when these two blind men who cannot see but have heard what Jesus has done, have heard of his mercy and his compassion and his healing work, cry out to him in acknowledgement by calling him Lord and Son of David. It was a proclamation of belief that this man who we've heard of but cannot see can certainly heal us. And so the crowds rejoice and go, yes, Jesus, heal them. Let's just check in who was reading. 31. The crowd rebuked them, telling them, to be silent. Now, you don't have to remember that long ago where the 12 themselves were rebuking children from coming to Jesus, and he had to correct them. At the time here, there would have been, here comes a rabbi, a famous rabbi now, with his followers, with his chosen students, and now we're going to go watch and listen to him teach because it's Passover, he's heading to Jerusalem, and there's people on the way. And so the teacher, get out of the way of the teacher, get out of the way of the teacher. And so two, you can't be more in need than sitting on a road between two cities with no way to get yourself between one or the other. You're completely dependent on the crowd's mercy. And the crowd says, be quiet. See, my my little pitch about the crowds as a child, as a a teenager, as an adult... The crowds don't want to hear about Jesus healing. They didn't care about the mercy. They didn't care about the mercy that these men needed. The crowds were there to watch a show. The crowds are filled with unbelief. And rather than the enemies of God, who at least overtly were hostile to Jesus, the crowds are subtly uncaring about the mission that Jesus was on. That seductive draw of passivity and observing and being part of the crowd has to be broken in the church. What called you this week away from your attention to the Lord? Hmm? 
mercy, grace, kindness? How many interactions did you have this week as a professed believer in Christ where what flowed out of you were mercy, compassion, a desire for someone to know the Lord? And how many interactions did you have this week what came out of you were not those things? How many times this week did you have an opportunity to share Christ with somebody? And instead, you just kind of drifted back in the crowd. Easier to be a part of the crowd, isn't it? Easier to not be seen, not be heard. The contrast that Matthew draws throughout his entire gospel between these groups isn't to be overlooked. I'm not overworking something that's not there. It's it's specific in the way that the gospel was written. These crowds are hostile by their indifference. They're not interested, as D.A. Carson wrote in his commentary, they're not interested in the compassion of Jesus, they're interested in the spectacle of Jesus. If they were interested in the compassion of Jesus, they would have got down and given water to the blind man. They would have given some food that they would have had. They would have given some money of their own. But when those in the greatest need finally have this one before them, And cry out in recognition of their need. What do they need? They need mercy. And the crowds tell them to shut up. It should make us, at at the very base level of, of being a believer, just, ah. This makes the crowds... No different than the adversaries who are openly adversarial against Jesus. Their mindset is antithesis to Christ. But that's okay, because he's about to teach them a lesson. And so in this interaction, Lord, have mercy on us. The crowd rebukes them. Their recognition, Son of David, Lord... They need mercy. But when they were rebuked, they cried out all the more. Uh, it's just a, it's a construct to say even louder, kind of like I'm kind of shouting today and I don't know why. It's like I thought that I wasn't going to have the microphone, but even now that I know I have it, I know my volume is still high. I don't know. But so they raised their cry even more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. In Luke's account... There's an interaction of of someone telling Jesus, someone's calling for you. And so there's even this idea that Jesus didn't hear them because of the crowds or whatever it might be. And so they're crying out even louder. And at the heart of it, understand what they're asking for. They want mercy. They want mercy. They need something that they can't earn, something that wasn't owed to them, something they can't work for. They need someone. They need this Jesus just to be merciful to them. And do not lose sight of this interaction that comes next. 
stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? It's a good English rendering of, of what's in the Greek. It's, it's, it's in essence like you have a desire that you're letting me know what is it that I'm able to do for you or do about it. And so there's now the, the, re, the way that it's written is that he stops or wherever he was within the crowd and wherever these, these two blind beggars were on the way, Jesus stops the procession and goes to them. Now imagine you're in the crowd and you're the first one who said, be quiet. I'm looking out for Jesus. That's Jesus over there. Be quiet and don't ask for stuff, blind guy. And then Jesus goes, oh, hold on, and walks past you to go talk to them. Probably not a part of the crowd anymore. But in their callousness, in their uncaring, in their, their wanting to enjoy whatever spectacle was going to come from this Jesus that they had seen other things or they maybe they were at the feeding or whatever it might be. Whatever he was going to do was probably going to be something interesting. And so we got to make sure these people are quiet because we're headed to Jerusalem. And Jesus stops everything, goes and addresses the two blind men and says, what is it I can do for you? And then the word that's used in this next interaction, these next two sentences, I want you to pay attention to. And I want you to pay attention to this. Whether it came to the children coming to him, whether it came to the woman that was bleeding, or the lepers, or even if you go in John's account of the long dialogue that he has with Nicodemus, what you see from Jesus over and over again is compassion is mercy he was concerned by the unbelief and the state of his people he knew they were broken and rebels and filled with unbelief and he's come to take care of it and along the way he's showing the world at this time there's only one who has mercy. There's only one who has compassion. At some point, people in this crowd had to have heard the parable of the good Samaritan. And then here's the crowds. Be quiet. What can I do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. The word for pity is the same word for compassion. Think about that. This is the author of life. These events are, are, are authored by God. These interactions are there to show Christ's power to people so that they might believe in him. And yet... The second person of the Trinity, the God-man, stops to address these and he has compassion on them. Meaning he wants to bestow mercy on them. He wants to open their eyes. Not just these eyes. 
He wants them to see by eyes of faith. He wants to open the eyes of their inner person to show them who he is. Their profession of faith in son of David and, and calling him Lord, linguistically you could look at that and say that's, that's faith. Maybe it, it, it might more have been a type of cultural understanding that Jesus, they might have believed he was a prophet for sure, but we don't know Messiah. You kind of get into all these tangled webs, but at the very least take away from, from these, these, these blind beggars and look to what Jesus is saying. What can I do for you? Lord, let our eyes be open. And with compassion, he touched their eyes. And the word for touch is the same word that's used for the woman who reaches out. It also means to set something alight, to burn. The idea is, in essence, that Jesus' touch simply turns the lights on. Whatever, whatever has happened this week, let's go by the week, not by your life. Whatever's happened this week in your life. Without a raise of hands, I'd be surprised if I said, everyone raise your hand if you feel like in some way you failed God this week. I'll just raise my hand. Raise your hand. Again, don't. (laughs) If sometime today you failed God, Raise your hand at some time in the coming weeks, in years, and however long you are here until the Lord calls you home or until he returns, will you fail? Yet this one, this Jesus, this Messiah, the one from eternity past, who God the Father said, see that one, and that one, and that one, and all those who will call on your name, I give them to you. Sovereign, paternal, unending love of the Creator on His creation out of no work of their own, in spite of their work. And he claims them as his own. Wherever you are in your Christian walk, whether you're in a very good place or you're feeling very low or wherever it might be, understand the author of life, the one who created you, the one who has redeemed you, and the one who will one day make you whole. His compassion never ends. Wherever you're at, his mercy is unceasing. And as these two blind men find out, and the crowds play witness to their own hard-heartedness, what was the point of following Jesus if not to emulate his compassion? What was the point of watching everything he did if it wasn't to learn from it and then do it? 
Why is the church called to works of mercy and compassion? Because our Lord set that example. And here he bends down once again to fallen, broken man and touches him. No words this time, just touches him. And they're illuminated or they can see. And the interaction that comes after this is really interesting. Lord, let our eyes be open and Jesus in pity or compassion touch their eyes. Immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Do you see it? Against any kind of social construct or whatever the crowds might have thought needed to happen. The crowds representing just base unbelief. Like, like when you were in high school. Well, I don't know what high school is like anymore. When, you were in, when I was in high school, all of a sudden a fight broke out in the middle of school. What happened? Everyone ran towards it. And then you couldn't even see it maybe. Like, what's happened? Do I know that kid? Oh, that, that looks bad. And then someone's down on the ground, or maybe they're both down on the ground, or maybe they're just wrestling or rolling around. And then the crowds dissipate, and you completely forget. Maybe that kid probably needs some help. Maybe that kid's hurt. Running to action, running to spectacle, but in an uncaring way, in a way that is dismissive of what God is trying to transform in our nature, to be people that are just like Christ. How is it that the world knows the difference from the church and the crowds of the world? It's that we look like the one we say we, that we profess. How can you go through your life in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood, if you resemble the uncaring crowds in everything you do? Rather than being ambassadors, heralds of Christ. You can't heal anyone's blind eyes, but you can give words of encouragement. You can share the gospel. You can share your life. And you see that in many of you, co-workers who come and visit the church, Stories of helping neighbors out and becoming confidence to them. People that you've interacted with in the workplace that, that you now have some type of relationship with in terms of sharing the faith with them. Jesus calls us to be all ministers of mercy. And in a hard, cold world, and one that seems to be coming more and more adversarial in how people interact with one another. What the church needs now more than ever is to remember the principles of why we're here. We're here to represent Christ. And that means we're not part of the crowd. That means we're not just looking on in spectacle. That means like these blind men, our eyes have been opened. He's opened and softened our dead hearts and brought us new life so that we might 
simply stand up and follow him. I pray that as a church, we consider the life of Christ and his works here in this account and what we've read throughout much of Matthew. And consider ourselves not in a a guilt-driven way of, well, I haven't done that lately, I've done that. No, rather than look at the mercy that God has shown me. In what manner then, Lord, please strengthen me to show a fraction of a fraction of compassion to someone in need. To someone in my life that needs to hear the gospel. Someone in my life that needs just someone to talk to. And through the power of the Spirit, Lord, help me lead them to you. The church is in need of plowing the old paths. The simplicity of the Christian witness in where you are in life in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your home, in your families. God has given you a target-rich environment with which you can exercise your spiritual gifts. I pray that we are moved by the mercy of our Lord. And Jesus, in pity... And in compassion touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, may we ever may we ever seek you in the midst of our struggles in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our victories, in the greatest and highest joys in this life, to the harshest and most devastating lows, may our faith continually grow. May we continually be transformed by the Spirit more and more into the image of Christ. Strengthen us, Lord, by the Spirit and the Word, to put to death dead works in our life. Through joy and recognition of receiving, like these two blind men, receiving what we did not work for. Mercy given freely. Compassion bestowed in abundance. Lord, lift our hearts and our minds to you at all times as we dwell in this fallen world. And with joy and faith, may we share that with the world around us. Lord, we pray as we continue this time of public worship. That our songs of praise would be in true recognition of your mighty work. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.